Nova is America's most watched science series. You'll find it every night at 7.50 on PBS. Sky Channel 166, Virgin Media 243. PBS, where television matters. The Guardian. I think it is vitally important that we build more houses in our country. Right now, if you're a first-time buyer and you don't have the assistance of the bank of mum and dad, the average age of the first-time buyer is 37 years old. That's just not good enough. And there are so many people in overcrowded homes, there are so many people on housing waiting lists, so we want to get Britain building. The Prime Minister at the launch of the government's housing strategy this week. £400 million invested in new development. The state sharing deposits on new homes for first-time buyers. A reform of social housing. And 50% discounts for right to buy. But with £400 billion being cut from housing last year, how much difference will this strategy make? I'm Hugh Muir and this week the podcast looks at that strategy and considers whether it can kickstart the housing market. Living situation currently is I rent with an, another flatmate, and I've been doing I've been renting for the past five six years as basically I can't afford to buy a place on my own. This is Nick Morris at home in Cottam in Bristol. He earns a very respectable thirty seven thousand pounds a year by working as an IT consultant, but like many young people without the privilege of parental help, he's unable to buy a home. Because so I've been looking around here and places. For a single bedroom, you're probably talking 160,000 plus, and if you want a two bedroom, a share with someone, it's probably about 200 grand plus in, in this area. I've kind of um, got a small deposit at the moment, but getting the mortgage, and then basically, if I was going to buy a house, I'd probably have to pay from I pay about 400 at the, mo- at the moment a month, and if I was to get a single place, it'd be like 650 a month, which is quite a big gap. I don't think I'd get a mortgage for a, a place at the moment either. You know with the deposit I got because it's it's a, it's a nice enough deposit but it's not enough to kind of get a place that I would like around this area. So would the government's scheme to share the deposit on a new build home help someone like Nick? It might help a little bit but at the end of the day that 5% is only a small amount of what I actually need to get um, towards a mortgage. You know it might contribute a little bit a month but it's still not going to bridge the gap that there is at the moment. I would say probably about 90% of my friends are in a similar situation. Some some have got houses and, you know, generally those people are people who've um, kind of moved in with a partner or the family's helped them out. Older generations like myself have found it much easier to buy, which is no consolation for people like Nick. I wouldn't say necessarily they had it easier, but back then house prices were so so much more comparable to the wage that people could go out, you know, say at 21, get married or whatever, and afford a, afford, a, afford a house pretty easily and not actually have to kind of stretch their budgets so far to actually be able to afford something. It's kind of the way the wage increase hasn't gone up at the same as the house increase. It's gone. It's a very, very different. The Coalition have introduced this mortgage indemnity scheme as currently first-time buyers need huge deposits of around 20% of the property price. But how will the banks feel about having the government involved? I asked the editor of The Guardian's money site, Hilary Osborne. Lenders have been very wary about new build properties. In recent years, a lot of them have restricted 
lending on those um, even more tightly than on other properties. Because they lose their value so quickly. That's it. And there's been quite a lot of schemes where builders have offered, say, free stamp duty, but they feel that's been factored into the price. So as soon as um, they've gone onto the market, the price has gone down. So they've been steering clear about these of these kinds of homes. And, and one of the lenders we spoke to yesterday said that the idea of lending 95% on a new build home was insane. <laughs> it's a welcome endorsement of the uh, government's new approach. Um, so if they don't like it, how did the government get them on board? Well, I think the government's been putting quite a lot of pressure on them over the last few years to um, lend more to first-time buyers and, and to free up the housing market. I think by offering this guarantee that, that they will, the lenders will effectively only be risking 80% of their money, the builder's going to offer a guarantee and the government's also going to offer a guarantee. So the lenders, even though they're not that happy about it that they're, they're not as exposed to the risk as as if they were lending 95 percent without the, the backing how do the government see this playing out or what would what would they hope will happen well one of the things that's been a problem in the housing market and that everyone accepts is a, a lack of supply and so by incentivizing people to buy new build properties then developers will be incentivized to build them and on those um, projects that have been under mothballs during the recession suddenly be able to start moving again and that should just get the whole market moving a little bit more and get rid of some of the problems we've seen in in recent years which isn't just first-time buyers not being able to buy but they're in rented accommodations we've seen rents move to record levels which is causing its own set of problems so it's not just the the buying market that that needs a little bit of a boost is the whole of the housing market but the housing crisis is more serious than people not being able to get a foot on the property ladder the waiting lists for social housing are increasing so is the level of homelessness Nobody loves you when you're down and out. Certainly there aren't many people rushing to put a roof over your head when things go wrong. Well, I became homeless in January of 2007. Um, I was evicted for non-payment of rent. It, it had taken a while to get there. But uh, anyway, there I was on the street. I had no idea where to go initially, but eventually it occurred to me that probably the council was a good place to go. This is Jeff. He told me about life at the bottom end of the housing spectrum. I discovered that as a single homeless person with no um, sort of vulnerability or addictions or anything, they'd actually been flagged up in the sense that a doctor had written a letter to say I had these problems, etc., even though I may well have done, um, meant that uh, I was the lowest priority um, for any kind of housing assistance. And even in that group, I was also the, the, the lowest priority. Again, I mean, people who might have been to prison or had addictions and so on that had been flagged up but would have, would have perhaps received some help, possibly. I was given an information pack and sent on my way by the council. Um, I did try to make head, you know, sort of try to figure out, um, you know, what that information might, um, you know, what, which bit of that information might actually be of some assistance to me. I actually ended up four weeks sleeping rough on the street. I then spent uh, two months in night shelters, um, a couple of months in a disused signal box in the centre of the borough that I, that I came from, a couple of months on someone's floor, and eventually um, I was introduced to a, um, an agency, a landlord, who took housing benefit. Um, it took that long to find that, and I found myself in private rented accommodation. Tell me what that's like, because um, you're a clever guy, 
but the system just seems oppressively complicated. Just tell us what it's like navigating your way through it. It eventually clobbers you. You know, I I don't consider myself to be terribly unintelligent, but I had no practice over over many decades of working and living in London of dealing with the uh, the social welfare system, so to speak. Um, uh, But I discovered that it is complex, and there are things that that happen which seem to be totally inexplicable. Um, For a start, the amount of money that I was paying to my landlord for what was pretty abysmal accommodation was phenomenally high. I wondered how on earth anybody got away with that. A year into you know, receiving that, um, arbitrarily some 60 or 70 pounds a week was just cut off that amount that they were paying without explanation. Um, given that I was still on job seekers allowance at that time, that, that, that pretty much amounted to my thinking of being constructive eviction because they, they surely knew that that's what my landlord was getting. I had no other source of income. I could hardly draw any more money out of the £69 I was getting to feed and clothe myself and so on. That's the way the system was working. It took many months to, to, um, to get them to see that that was a problem. Um, and they, they sort of said, we suggest you think about moving into cheaper accommodation, etc. Um, we have simply decided that the rents in your area are no longer, uh, you know, the level we were at no longer applies. Um, life became very difficult indeed. I, however, then found um, some employment, um, and uh, but but and and the the negotiation between myself and uh, the housing benefit system changed somewhat. But actually, um, I discovered that the one thing that the the housing benefit system really can't deal with is anybody who's on a variable income. It's just a one-size-fits-all shop, and um, if one month I earn nothing, uh, trying to convince them of that is a serious problem. They continue to pay at whatever level they have deemed that you, you weren't when the initial figures came in, and you're left to deal with it. So is the answer to the plight in Jeff and others to build more homes. Well, earlier in the week, The Guardian broke the story that after lobbying by developers, the government is planning to relax planning laws, making it easier to build on greenfield sites. What will that mean? I asked Kate Houghton from the Campaign to Protect Rural England. The draft national planning policy framework moves away from the idea of the planning system as something which integrates economic, environmental and social aims to deliver development that's in the public interest. And it moves towards placing an emphasis on the planning system existing to deliver economic growth. Now, the planning system can, of course, support economic growth and it, it already does that. But in doing that, it also takes into account other issues, so the environmental and social ones. Of course, that planning system was created way back in 1947, and many will see it as bureaucratic and needlessly time-consuming. Doesn't it need changing? I don't think so at all. I think think the principle doesn't need changing. Um, We're at at a stage where I think we're realising more than ever um, that development has to be sustainable and that we can't just keep exploiting the environment um, because actually all of the resources that contains are finite, including land. I think we recognise that there are elements of the system and the way it works that can change. Um, we recognise that it can be slow and it can be bureaucratic and that it can be opaque. But um, basically, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We think that the principle of delivering development in the public interest is still very sound. Of course, the uh, accusation that I'm sure you're 
keen to avoid all the while is nimbyism and we do have a housing shortage in London. Doesn't it make sense to build close to the city if there's suitable land? Um, absolutely. Um, we recognise there is a housing crisis um, and we absolutely recognise and we welcome development which focuses on existing cities and towns. Um, we've recently um, had some research completed for us which has shown that actually there is enough brownfield land across the whole of England to deliver 1.5 million new houses. In London, there's enough to deliver around 450,000 new houses on previously developed sites. So we completely support development which is integrated with existing infrastructure, which makes use of land that's already been developed before and um, needs some rejuvenation. And that can offer, that's not just environmental benefits, that can also offer multiple economic and social benefits. How do you make your voice heard? Because this is a nightmare um, issue for government, isn't it? The, the Telegraph and Mail are angry on the on the one side. They're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't. Uh, yeah, and, and I think we're, um, since the summertime really, CPRE have been trying to get the message across since the government launched the draft national planning policy framework um, that we are concerned um, and that I think They've started to listen, actually, and I think that we're beginning to have constructive conversations with government where we're saying, for example, in the draft planning policy, how do you define sustainable development? We think it's really important that's defined very tightly and very carefully so that those making decisions on planning applications on the ground um, can be absolutely confident that those decisions will hold if they're appealed against um, because the government has given that guidance on what it means by sustainable development. So that's The Blueprint, and joining me to discuss the housing strategy, we have Patrick Butler, he's the editor of Society, Health and Education Policy for The Guardian. Also Duncan Shrubsole, Head of Policy at Crisis, and Alex Morton, Senior Research Fellow of Housing and Planning at the Policy Exchange. Welcome to all of you. Uh, Duncan, let me start with you. Um, We've had The Blueprint, we've had a few days to look at it. Does this feel like an important moment? Um... I think it becomes a bit less impressive with every passing day. Uh, the fact that we had a housing strategy in the one hand was a good thing. Uh, there was a little bit of money, um, a few initiatives, but we need to see it against the background of the historic problems that we've got. The fact that the government took $4 billion out of the housing budget last year. And as we've seen only in the statistics released this week, we've had a 99% drop in the number of new affordable homes built. So the problems are huge and the strategy, uh, some good little bits along the side. But does it really do enough to tackle those huge problems? I think not. So is it not that you're not taking issue with what's in it, it's just that there's not enough in it? Um, well, there's, a, there's some gremlins about, and details about how things will work. Will right to buy extension, on the one hand, do we want to be encouraging more people into potentially marginal home ownership? Don't know. We need to think about that. Will it actually lead to a new home being built when one is sold? Don't know. We need to see if that will work. But generally, the historic issues, we're not building enough of any house, of any houses. Housing affordability uh, is a real, uh, is sort housing unaffordability, sorry, is soaring. And we're not building particularly enough affordable homes. Um, it doesn't really tackle those hard issues. And it also doesn't really do anything about making a better deal for tenants in the private rented sector, which is a real and growing issue. Patrick Butler, um, 16,000 new homes due to be built under the scheme, but uh, against that, £4 billion, uh, taken away from housing last year. So um, isn't this a drop in the ocean, I think, is what the uh, National Housing Federation called it. Do you agree? Well, I think, as Duncan said, it's more money, and any money is welcome at, at this stage. But I think, as Duncan also said, it's probably not enough to make a big dent in a very huge problem and that problem, at the, the root of that problem, is we just aren't building enough houses. And whose fault is that, um, do you think, Alex? 
Um, I was going to say that uh, the private sector has failed to build enough houses, but the private sector is not the private sector just because uh, it's a market and the market isn't working. What is happening is the price of land is being bid up because councils don't release enough land, so you end up uh, with a bizarre situation where actually the cost of a house is about half of what you could sell it for. Now, in normal circumstances, you'd expect a massive construction boom, houses being built um, left, right and centre, uh, and the crisis that we're talking about wouldn't even exist. But the problem is, of course, that land markets in this country are not uh, functioning very well, and the reason for that is that councils are in charge of releasing land for development, and over about 30 years they just haven't released enough, as the problem's got worse and worse and worse. So... In a way, you're municipalising the problem, aren't you? Because it's a, the private um, builders aren't building enough, but that's because of the framework that they are having to work within, you would say. Uh, yes, although the problem at the moment is that lots of developers bought land at very high prices. Uh, they don't want to build and crystallise their losses. So developers are doing what they did in, in, after the last uh, house price bubble, which is they're just going to try and build a few homes, enough to keep cash flow going, and then they're just going to sit back and wait for house prices to start going up again. I mean, that would be a pretty disastrous situation. We've got a, a long-term situation where when house prices go up, not enough land is released, and then there's a slump. What happens is developers have bought land at very high prices. They won't build on that land because there's a slump. So they wait, and then you get another bubble starting off, and again, not enough land is released. So each big uh, boom and bust is getting bigger and bigger. So the next one will be even bigger than the last one, which was bigger than the one in the 80s, unless we fix the fundamental problem. So, Duncan, do you, does that um, accurately diagnose the problem from where you sit? I mean, I think there's a number of elements. I think what Alex said is is, is a key part. There is a real issue around the planning system, around the price of land. Um, we've got sort of three actors. in. We've got local government, we've got the private sector, and we've got central government. Um, and the bits are not working together and the bits are not being integrated. And what we don't have is a strategy overall as to how they should fit together. Um, and we desperately need that. It's a highly irrational market framework, which people are trying to behave their, the best they can rationally within it, but the outcomes are not what we need. Um, so I think we certainly need to get right the planning and land framework. Um, but we also need to recognise that houses are not just units. Um, they are homes, and, that's, and, and a good home is vital to life chances, whether that's um, educational attainment, health, moving back into work for families, or particularly for single people who uh, crisis works with. And um, we are streets away, uh, light years away from getting the number of new houses and them being affordable for people on low incomes or who are unfortunately out of work that we really need. And the strategy um, doesn't even give you any numbers as to where the government thinks it might get to. Um, so we, it's difficult to have confidence that we're going to get to where we need to. Actually, looking at the strategy, do you have confidence? Because if there's a common theme, people seem to be saying, well, this kind of sounds all right, the tune seems all right, but the detail, we're either it isn't there or, or, or we're not sure that we like the detail that we're seeing. Um, are you confident that this is moving in the right direction in terms of, in terms of those details? Well, I'm not sure that it is. And when I look through the strategy, what um, I, 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 I'm constantly coming across things where I think they sound good, on paper, in theory. But when you think about what's happening in practice, you're seeing something completely different. So take, for example, affordable housing, which sounds wonderful. Let's build some houses that people can afford. Um, But when you look at what affordable actually means, you realise that in many parts of the country, affordable houses are, to all intents and purposes, unaffordable. So let me give you an example. I spoke to a housing association this week, and they said, look, uh, if in a, a certain parts of London, for example, if you have, uh, we might have a two-bedroom flat where the current social tenant pays £130 a week. 
Um, if that was at private rented levels in the market, you could probably charge £500 a week. Affordable housing is still £300 a week for that flat. Now, if you think that that housing association is pitching that flat at people on very low wages, then £300 a week just is unaffordable. And that's the kind of problem where the strategy kind of runs up against reality. And Alex, does it look to you like a strategy? I mean, there are lots of different measures in it, but do they hang together in a way that you could reasonably refer to as a strategy? I think one of the main things that was missing from this was an analysis. So it didn't sort of say where we are, why have we got here? You know, it just said, oh, there's a crisis. And if you want to fix a crisis, you need to work out what the problem is. And the fundamental problem goes back to that, that chronic undersupply of 30 years of, of too few homes being built. And I think, miss, you know, just to say we're going to fix this by having a short-term scheme around mortgages. Um, you know, when mortgage lending boomed in the last 10, we all know that there was a giant mortgage bubble, yet houses weren't built and housing got more and more unaffordable. So I think in that sense, it sort of said, here's a, here's a, a huge crisis, and then they did a, a small sort of couple of schemes around the edges, but not really fundamentally setting out, you know, what they're going to do to fix a giant problem. So d- does it help that um, in, in the round, what they seem to be saying is... Uh, we can do a bit about this, we can do about um, in terms of uh, the homeless, in terms of what councils do, but it doesn't really seem to have the coherence that a lot of people were looking for. Uh, I probably agree with that. It is quite uh, initiative heavy. It reminds me of a lot of documents, if you read under the last government, where it's very good intentions, but um, the actual fundamental uh, key core to the problem uh, wasn't fixed. And like I said, the key point, uh, I keep banging on about this every meeting I go to, you can build a house for about half or less than the cost of it actually going on sale for. You know, when you understand that, you understand what the problem is. The problem is then, well, what's the other half made up for? A little bit goes to councils, the rest of it is land. And that fundamentally is, is what is causing the housing crisis. And incidentally, mostly recycling wealth, and this is where I think it gets quite interesting, uh, away from people on lower incomes to people who are basically large landowners. And for some reason, this, this giant redistribution of wealth is not really sort of uh, discussed or, or commented on by the left, which I find quite interesting. Duncan, do, do you look at this and think this will help the sort of people that I have to deal with? Because you know, one of the uh, one of the measures in here um, is a consultation about as to whether or not more people might buy their own homes. Now, if that takes more homes out of the housing stock, that's not a good thing necessarily, is it? I mean, I think owner occupation, uh, you know, many people aspire to it. We should never say people shouldn't aspire to it, but we should recognise that for many people, renting is, whether in the private or the social sector, is going to be the long-term option for them. So we have to make sure that uh, they can afford to do that compared to declining real wages and that what the houses that they get are of good quality, whether in the social private sector. And I think the two huge problems about this strategy is that it starts by recognising the role that housing plays in terms of generating economic growth but then doesn't come up with a solution to to match it and what we did learn is that um, the private sector will build and can build but sometimes it needs some public money to help with that that might be to do or build the affordable housing element or might be to do some other things so it can kickstart wider growth and yet yes we've got a 450 million pounds but last year we took four billion pounds out of the housing budget the biggest cut to any budget aside from universities um, the second issue is it doesn't acknowledge at all what's going on in the other bit of government. The biggest b- budget for housing is actually the housing benefit bill, some £22 billion. And that, yes, there are some issues with that um, bill uh, bill, and what and how housing benefit works. But fundamentally, um, it is 
the cuts to housing benefit are reducing what people can pay in rent. Um, and there's no join up at all between the two policies, not least, as Patrick says, the government is consciously pushing a policy where it says so-called affordable housing, which isn't actually very affordable, will be at much higher rents. And those rents are going to be above the caps uh, that government is setting for housing benefits. So there's not even join up there. Mm. So it's not equal to the scale of the challenge. And the policies don't join up with what the government's been doing um, itself in terms of spending decisions and in terms of other government policy decisions and the people who will lose out are the people who always lose out is those at the very bottom those who are homeless those on housing waiting lists those who are overcrowding who are waiting wait yet longer for um, anywhere suitable that they can call home patrick duncan mentioned that aspiration to own your own home uh, how much is this complicated by the fact that we we here do have a real fixation with people owning their own homes in a, in a way that other countries don't seem to have. They seem to be more happy to rely on the, re- the rented sector. Um, I think that's true, and I think that's something that uh, probably ever since the 1980s, you know, we have had... It's now embedded in this, or it, at least for our generation, Hugh, I think things are going to be very different if you're, if you're 20 or you're now in your teens. One of the things I, I think is very interesting about the strategy in terms of, of the social renting aspect is that as someone said to me the other day this is yet another chapter in the slow death of social housing now we used to think that social housing was for people on low incomes uh, perhaps people who were poor and vulnerable and what seems to be happening is now that social housing or affordable housing if you want to call it that is now for hard-working families in, in quotations who can't afford to get a mortgage now, what happens to the people who used to go into this rapidly shrinking, um, uh, this rapidly shrinking uh, social housing stock that we have, is that they are now going into the private rented sector. And as Duncan said before, the private rented sector, particularly at the lower end, is hugely unregulated. And what many people are worrying about is one of the effects of this will be will be the return of Rackman, mm. and that we're it's going to be Kathy come home all over again. Alex, a few of the organisations involved in housing have complained that uh, this is all about new build, but there isn't much in there to, to, as Patrick says, regulate um, the the, the way that private landlords operate, um, the sort of conditions that people have to live in now. Are you disappointed there wasn't more about that? I think it's interesting that the uh, landlords, some of the landlord associations actually want this, um, and the government hasn't come forward to it. However, I do think it is a slight distraction. The, the public-private renting owning, you know, renting is also unaffordable now in most of South of England. If you don't build enough houses, it doesn't matter if they're to buy or rent. If rents start going up fast, then people start to buy to let because, you know, and then you get less houses for owner-occupiers. We're just sort of shifting a stock around. But at the end of the day, if there isn't enough to house people, then prices in both sectors go up. In terms of the public-private the government could have made a case and said, look, between uh, 1980 and 1997, the heyday of right to buy, waiting lists fell. So under the last Tory government, I mean, it's not popular to say this on its housing professionals, but waiting lists fall because private housing is cheap enough that some people go and get a council house, then they get a girlfriend or boyfriend or they want to move out and they move out into the private sector. No one ever leaves the social housing sector now unless you're carried out of a coffin, really. And the point is that, that rent, private rents are so high as... Um, was commented on, that no one's going to do that voluntarily. So you could say, OK, we aren't putting as much money in, in pri- uh, social housing, but that doesn't matter because we're going to get a, a large private housing bu- uh, boom that's going to keep prices down, cut rents, and that would work. But that isn't what the government came up with. They just said, well, there isn't money for social housing, 
but we're not reading that much to, you know, to massively increase house building. And I think that's the problem. You can do one or the other. I think the government is broke, so it's not going to do the first. So it basically leaves us with the second uh, and how we do that. And that's what the housing strategy should have been all about. Duncan, one of the things that interested me was um, they seemed to be, the government seemed to be talking about almost shifting the purpose of social housing from being uh, where people live to being almost a tool of social mobility. Um, and, and it was a sense that uh, I think that, that, that Alex touched upon that you shouldn't live in them for too long. I mean, in a way, that's a very insecure kind of life, isn't it? Well, I mean, this has been going, this has been a trend. It's not just the housing strategy. It started with the move to, in the localism bill, tenancies of only five years, um, the introduction of affordable rent. It, it fails, at, like Alex said, it doesn't underst- they haven't understood all the problems. The reason why social housing is, as it were, residualised, where people talk about it, it's got the most vulnerable in it, is because there isn't enough of it. Social housing originally was conceived as housing for workers, and it was for, um, uh, for the working classes and low-income working people. It had to be concentrated on the most vulnerable because there wasn't enough of it. If you want to help more people benefit from it, use it as a platform to move into work, to benefit from the lower rents, definitely compared to what the rents are in the private sector, you need more of it. And then just kind of playing off... Um, homeless people against ex uh, former servicemen against low income working families it's kind of it, it's, it's not actually helping anybody it also ignores the fact that the other thing we want is mixed estates we want mixed estates by mixed income mixed family types and if you set up that as soon as someone prospers um, they're forced they're supposed to move on a that's a disincentive to them to improve themselves and b it removes the people who are wor- working from the estates which is not what we wanted um, so there's a there's a lot again a lack of coherence intellectually philosophically and practically going on here and sensibly where would you draw the line anyway how wealthy would someone have to be to be too wealthy to be in social housing well this uh, this is an interesting one it's something that ministers like to talk about uh, they used to call it the frank dobson law <laughs> they've been introduced frank. frank dobson law because it was alleged that frank dobson was even though he earned a lot of money as an mp was in a council flat paying council rents protected rents in camden they're now calling it the bob crow law which is the RMT leader who earns a hundred and which is probably a relief to Frank Dobson. Yeah, <laughs> who earns one hundred and thirty thousand pounds and apparently lives in a council house in the east end of London. Um, uh, so yes, uh, it's an interesting and it's quite a populist notion that we should get people who earn too much money and kick them out of council houses. But is it just populism? I mean, are, are there that many of them? Well, I think the interesting thing is I'm not sure how they would work out how much anyone earns. So, I'm not sure this is a means-tested uh, operation. So, uh, and I can't. And in fact, the government's own figures, based on what I do not know, suggest there are only six thousand people who are in council homes who earn more than one hundred thousand pounds. In the great scheme of things, that's not a great number of homes to free up so maybe window dressing but we do need big ideas and i know alex you have a big idea um as to how we might uh, uh, improve this situation at a single leap garden cities garden talk, about, cities. talk about garden cities um well there there are two big ideas uh, the first one is that uh the local authority planning system hasn't worked and it hasn't worked for a very long time uh, and if you look there are there are some politics involved in this um everyone sort of likes to think that these things are dry and dull but for the first 30 years, local councils would, would build houses. And they got a lot of subsidy for social housing. Only about a third of people own their own homes. So people thought cheap rent's great, homes for first-time buyers great. We've now got about 70% of people owning their own home, particularly in areas where we want to build. They don't like new houses being built near them. And there's actually quite a good reason for that. If you look, uh, there are lots of academic studies that show that if you build new houses near people uh, uh, of mediocre quality or below, or even average quality and below, and you take up green space, the house price drops. So it's all very well saying, oh, these people are being selfish, but actually in some sense they're being reasonable because they're saying, well, actually this is a cost. Um, and, and they don't get compensated for that. 
there's no control of what's built. I mean, if we look at a lot of these sort of boxy, unattractive houses that are being sort of sprung up over the past 20 years, you have to ask yourself, if you have a, a nice view of a field, are you really going to give that up so you can sort of look out on sort of some kind of hobbit home? So that was the first thing, is that we need to change the planning system so it becomes more of a, a system where the people who lose out, i.e. people who live nearby at the moment, gain, um, and they will be more prepared to allow more homes. Mm. And the second point is that that's going to take a while, but we also need to, to do something now. So we come up with the, the idea of garden cities. And what this is saying is that if people in an area are prepared to accept it and business will come forward with it, we will create sort of designate new garden cities in the same way that Welland and Letchworth, Milton Keynes uh, after the war, where you get a, an area and you create a, a new town. And one of the points of this is that if you will now compulsory purchase agricultural land, that you can then turn that into housing. And that, that makes a lot of profit that then pays for infrastructure. It pays for transport to nearby areas. It's basically a huge way of getting the economy going, of building some houses immediately, but we fix that longer-term problem over the next few years. So, from Duncan, from your uh, point of view, is this a good idea? Uh, <clears throat> I once worked for Milton Keynes Council, so I'm a big fan of actually Milton Keynes and garden cities, and I think we need to look at all approaches. And as Alex is right, that when building houses, we need to think about communities and places where people want to live. Otherwise, it's a short-term fix, and it stores up problems for the future. The fact we're pulling down 60s blocks now is a tragedy. Um, but, uh, you know, I th- and that, so I think we need to look at all measures. But we also need to look at um, making our cities, which is where increasing numbers of people live and work and want and actually want to live, uh, viable places and build houses of all types. Um, I think we do need to recognise, though, that some of these things have got a long, uh, a slightly longer timescale. Um, we had Nick Clegg and David Cameron put their boots on this week. We need them to put their boots on every day and make housing a t- core national issue. It's central to the economy, central to uh, uh, public services, central to life chances. And we also need to recognise people are hurting now. 2010 is the year that marks homelessness in all its forms. Families, single people um, uh, started to rise. Housing waiting lists are soaring. And yet people are hurting from cuts to housing and vice services, homelessness services um, and uh, the the 99% drop that we saw this week in the number of new affordable homes built. So we've got some really urgent needs which need to be addressed now, yes with money, yes with dedication uh, from central and local government and getting the private sector really on board. Patrick, just speak quickly about the politics in this. Um, How incendiary uh, a, a subject is housing for the government and for politicians? My perception of this is that that housing is um, is incredibly uh, important to politicians. I think if you think back to rights by in the 1980s, that was a bit of a game changer for Mrs Thatcher. By introducing the right of people who rented council homes to buy their council homes, she delivered a big Labour bloc vote to the Tories. And I think ever since then, politicians have been slightly enthralled to Uh, to the power of housing in this regard. Um, What we're seeing here, it seems to me, is we're seeing politicians concentrate on a certain bit of the electorate which is squeezed, the squeezed middle, if you like. The people who earn too much to qualify for council housing or or, or social rented housing, uh, but they don't earn enough uh, to, uh, to get a mortgage. Now, I think politicians are chasing that vote. And I think the ones that succeed to get that vote will do very well at the next election. Housing is one of the ways in which they can appeal to to those people. Let me um, just remind you of a few other exciting initiatives. Uh, The the First Time Buyers Initiative, Own Home, Social Home Buy, Open Market Home Buy, First Buy, the Kickstart Housing Delivery Plan, all of which uh, were designed to get first-time buyers on the mortgage ladder. Um, and here we are again uh, with yet another 
plan to try and do the same thing. Uh, Alex, do you think we'll be here uh, having this conversation this time next year? Um, I think we quite possibly will be. I think if housing construction doesn't go up, we may be having a slightly different discussion. Uh, I do think that we are close to or at a tipping point where basically the amount of dysfunction that the planning system is causing and the the rippling effect... I mean, I I don't want to go into too many other areas, but, for example, about three-quarters of lending goes to mortgages, went to mortgages at the height of the boom. At the moment, uh, business lending is falling while mortgage lending is going up. So this isn't just a sort of housing crisis. The whole of our economy, the whole of our society, uh, people who can't afford family homes... Um, basically it's a huge issue and I think that the government is starting to grasp that and I think that the housing strategy was a, a slightly missed opportunity but whether or not in a year's time we'll be saying great we've now got a, a plan to go forward with um, remains to be seen. Duncan very quickly um, is this the, uh, the the game changer or will this just be another to add to that long list of initiatives that have come and gone? Well we have to welcome the fact that there is a housing strategy but having a strategy in itself is is just a start it's the content of it and we need concentrated political focus housing needs to be a higher political priority of all parties but this coalition government as I said Nick Cameron I'm um, sorry David Cameron and Nick Clegg put their <laughs> boots on they like to be um, almost the same this person. week but they need to be doing this day in day out and they need to be winning the treasury over and they need to be uh winning dwp over to make sure that what's going on around housing benefit and public spending generally is all joined up um i'm not necessarily hopeful we're going to get there uh but they need to make sure they do because housing underpins so much of ev- everything else that goes on and, and most particularly the lives and life chances of individuals and families okay well thank you all there's obviously a lot riding on this for the government in terms of the economy but also in terms of its own political fortunes it's a plan but is it the right plan we'll see Thanks to my guests, Patrick Butler, Duncan Shropsall and Alex Morton. I'm Hugh Muir, the producer of this Focus podcast was Peter Sale. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.